Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. This is a podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. We're really excited for today's show with Cole Crosby, an unbelievable ultra runner from here in Rhode Island, so close to my home, and somebody who has so many really interesting perspectives and just great knowledge on how runners of all abilities who are looking to work on any distance can improve their running and their training and just what you're capable of doing. And that's uh, that's the key to this one because this guy has done some amazing things, a 250-mile race, and even most recently, set the, he, was, he was the first person to ever run the OG route solo in the Speed Project, which is 354 miles from L.A. to Las Vegas. He was the first person to ever do it on that route in a solo effort, and it is a truly remarkable story. Also, big shout out to our sponsors today, Vacation Races and Lagoon Pillows. You can get links and savings for both of those companies in the show notes to this podcast. All right, let's get into it with Cole. Cole Crosby, welcome to the show, my man. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Great to talk with you. So a little behind the curtains for everyone listening to this. So what we do is before we press record here on the show, you know, we kind of go over like, hey, is there technology working? And here's how the show setup is. Cole dropped a bomb on me asking like, hey, I know you live in Rhode Island. Where do you live? Found out Cole lives literally around the corner from where I used to live. We didn't live there. seems like we didn't live there at the same time. Um, but it is wild. Actually, I have me, I have a cousin, and I have an uncle-in-law. And in Cole's house, they all basically form a little square basically each house separated by about 50 yards, which is like a remarkable and absolutely classic Rhode Island experience. People haven't been to Rhode Island. This is basically what it is, is having these kinds of conversations. So Cole, I am so glad to have you on the show. With that said, what you did recently has nothing to do with Rhode Island. You were overdoing this. You were out doing the speed project, which is something we've covered here on the show before, but at the same time, not a ton of people know about. I feel like people either know a lot about it or they don't know about it at all. So can you give a little introduction to in terms of what the speed project is and how it came up on your radar? Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> so the speed project is super secretive, right? Um, they don't have a website. Um, they use all their correspondence through Instagram. So that's kind of the main, the main landing page for information on the event. Um, it really is just a gathering of, uh, like-minded people. And that's kind of how it all started. It started 10 years ago, um, as a running relay. Um, the, uh, kind of like race director, uh, Nils, he, um, wanted to run from LA to Vegas, kind of picked a, uh, audacious type of goal and, um, him and some of his friends kind of uh, went into a, uh, you know, loaded up in a truck and off they went. And that's how the Speed Project all started. So it really, it started um, initially as a relay. And then just a couple years ago, um, David Kilgore, I believe, was the first uh, solo runner, you know, just a single person to run from LA to Vegas. Um, and then that's how the solo division kind of started. Um, and uh, I guess to um, talk about it a little bit, just a little bit more. So people kind of understand the event. It's, uh, really just, you're pretty much running. You have, you can pick your own route. You're running from Los Angeles to Santa Monica pier to the welcome to Las Vegas sign. Whatever happens in between is kind of up to you and your crew. Um, as long as you don't break the law, as long as you're not running on a major interstate highway, um, pretty much everything else is fair game. Obviously don't cheat, like don't just, 
drive to Las Vegas. You actually have to run. And have have to there, is some, yeah. there is some tracking parameters that they kind of put into place to make sure people aren't, you know, cutting those corners. But ultimately, part of the fun of it is it's kind of a no rules, kind of very free flowing type of event and adventure. Yeah, very well said. Uh, and I love the whole like basically here are the two the two points figure it out kind of feel to it right it does it definitely amplifies the adventure feel of of you know the weekend or the week or however long it takes a group or individual uh to get there david kilgore for people who may not be uh in the know is someone who's a huge kind of running person right so a really well-known person in the running space uh the trail and ultra world he also uh has you know created his own you know race series and other running events i think he also works for on running uh in the capacity in terms of athlete recruitment and retention and things like that so a uh, really interesting guy in and of his own right so uh, once he did it i know it definitely was like oh this is a thing now david kilgore is doing it this is this is a you know just from like the the solo routes perspective i should say not in terms of the speed project generally speaking but i will say a lot of very well-known people have decided to do the speed project. It is so interesting. It's something that is secretive. It also has some very high profile people who have done it. I just think even this past weekend, Chris Chavez was out there and, and I shouldn't say this weekend, but Chris Chavez was out there running multiple legs and following him on, uh, on Strava was pretty funny. He's being like leg 19 or I don't think he got up to that level, but it was a lot of legs of it. With that said, you did one leg. You did the whole kit and caboodle. So there's one thing to be like, hey, this is an audacious thing. This is really fun. It kind of mimics what we've seen elsewhere with like Ragnar relays and stuff like that, which is can be a really fun bonding adventure type experience. So when this came across your radar, why did you gravitate towards the solo aspect of it? Yeah, uh, I mean, I've been ultra running since 2012, 2013. And so I've just been kind of like building up in distance. Um, for anyone that knows me, I'm kind of, uh, I, I've recently since COVID, I think become more of a very much a long distance athlete. So about, you know, hundred miles and beyond is where I start. And so I ran New Jersey, which was about uh, 197 miles and set a like, whatever, unofficial state record. I did, did run it very quickly, uh, in like 44 hours. Um, and that to me was like the starting point, right? It's a point when I did that, that was a point to point as well. And so those types of adventures just it's like in my dna at this point it just makes sense so like the whole la to vegas vegas kind of thing just it it to me it's like music to my ears i'm like yes i totally understand what that is all about like and that, that's you know and for me to expand my horizons and say hey you know uh the most i've ever run is 250 miles now i'm going to try and do 341 i'm like i can do it Let, let's make it happen um and so I guess, you know, I'm wired differently than a lot of other people out there. But at the same time, I, I think of that as my true superhuman strength. Well, that is that no question about it. That's a superhuman strength. At the same time, you had a ton of high level, high quality race results over time. I mean, you mentioned like, hey, you know, I've been doing this for whatever. But like, you know, you just if you scroll through your ultra sign up, which I'm doing literally as we're talking, and I did this before obviously in preparation for this call, it's high level races throughout. I mean, this is, you know, you go all the way down like again, I mean I'm just like the first time I was looking through this, I was like, holy cow, like right from like age twenty three. I mean, you're doing very well the whole time. 
and we're getting into like these ultra ultra max ultra i don't even know what like this is kind of like you talk about shoes like you're like hey this is high stack well this is max stack well, this is ultra max stack i don't know what we call this for ultra running uh you know in terms of that that regard what about even at age 23 pulled you into and I was certainly even before then but like i'm looking at like white rock classic 50k you know first overall age 23 right so like at such an early age to gravitate towards ultra and extreme ultra distances talk to me about that because that doesn't seem like something that just happens naturally like there has to be some like push and pull and and things that were, were part of this formula yeah i think um you know i was a walk-on at the university of oklahoma and so uh as i was kind of like ending my career i was trained for the oklahoma city marathon and uh i had always kind of had a um a connection with the trails. Anytime we do workouts out on some of our, you know, Lake Thunderbird and all these different parks and everything, um, those were like those were like my workout days. Like I always thrived in those those types of environments. And so, I did start with the shorter distance kind of trail stuff uh, right out of college. Um, but I I think as I was kind of getting into the marathon, catching the marathon bug, um, I looked at the ultras being like, well, fifty k isn't that much further than uh, a marathon. Um, I might as well just give it, it a shot. I, and for me, it was funny. I, you know, I ran that 50 K before I ever ran the Oklahoma city marathons. I'm thinking, okay, if I can get through this 50 K up in the Hills of Arkansas, like I should be able to run a good marathon. And it did translate pretty well. I mean, um, I had a, had a very good first 50 K at the white rock 50 K. Um, and then, uh, play second at the Oklahoma city marathon. Uh, I think I ran like 236 or 237, somewhere around there um with an insane negative split and uh yeah and that you know that's kind of what started things for me and then after that i moved out east for grad school to upstate new york and kind of got connected with uh the finger lakes running company and ian golden and some of the people kind of in that circle and uh you know that really i would say ian ian was instrumental in kind of like pushing me to do some of his like ultra marathon events and the rest is history so where do you go to grad school? Uh, SUNY Cortland. Okay. So you go up there, and there's a pretty, you know, that area, it's not a hugely well-populated area, as you know, but there is a really solid ultra scene up there, and there's a lot of good races up there, too. So talk to me about your early formations in this sport. We're not going to do a completely chronological deep dive of your whole running career, but yeah. I think that the foundational part of this, because obviously it, it – played a huge role because here you are still doing these things. So talk to me about as you were integrating yourself into that community, into ultra generally, and kind of distancing yourself literally and metaphorically from your college running days. Talk to me about why this was such a, a positive experience for you and how your training and the way you viewed training changed along with it. Yeah, I think where it stems from was initially just having, like, I've, I just love just exploring um, and using my own two feet as a vehicle for uh, for doing so. And so in, in grad school, um, you know, we had uh, really some amazing trails at a local ski area called Greek Peak Ski Resort. And there was like uh, three different swatches of state forest. So like, let's say about, uh, you know, thousands of uh, kind of acres of space all throughout. And so I would just go on the weekends and just run up around there and explore the trails and everything. And um, I just really enjoyed that that aspect. 
Um, I did, you know, obviously I did do some shorter races. Like my first race in upstate New York was a trail marathon. Um, and then. Wow. We're know, really would, going with the uh, shorter in quotes here, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, uh, I just, I, I don't know. I've, I guess I've always been someone that is, uh, not afraid to fail. And so, um, the longer distances, like I, you know, I, I realize also that like a lot of my skill set as an athlete, like being able to run uphill, I'm not, a, I, I tried running Mount Washington and it kicked my butt. And I was like, I do not have the muscular strength to do this. Oh um, man, this, this is like a goal cool race. Man. I was so, I really wanted to run that race this year and I missed the, I missed the registration window. We had a really, really awful week in our house that week. And I, I just, it slipped my mind. We just like crazy, crazy kid stuff. And I missed it. Now, hearing now that, they, that you struggled with that race, I'm I'm pretty glad that I missed it. Like that's, that is really that really sets my my uh, uh, parameters for this race. Uh, maybe in the proper perspective. Yeah, Matt, I'll tell you this. Um, it's it's definitely something you should do. It's a one like a once in a lifetime kind of thing for me personally. Like I like I think it's an they do an amazing job. Mount Washington Road Race is awesome, uh, but I'll never run it again. I kind of got my fill of it. Um, <laughs> And then that's where I kind of, but I took the lessons from that and pivoted into kind of more of the ultras. I thought, okay, I can run, I can run up hills really well. It just, the longer, longer it goes, the more that that distance is spread out, the more that I thrive when other people may not. And so it was just like a science experiment, just observing myself versus kind of the other runners out there and realizing like, oh, okay, I, I, there's something here, like I should stick with this. And so that's, you know, how things kind of progressed. Were there people in the ultra and trail scene that you either gravitated towards or viewed either pers- like personally or from afar as mentors or people that you wanted to emulate? Yeah, so the very one of the very first ultras I ran was the Cayuga Trails 50 mile, which I had run a lot up in Ithaca. Amazing, amazing uh, place, amazing course. Um, reminds me of like running in like a Tomb Raider movie. Um, which is pretty cool. You don't, you know, you wouldn't expect that. And you think of New York and you don't think of that, but um, in the very first Cayuga trails that I ran, there was uh, just uh, incredible athletes like Sage Canaday showed up who he was a Cornell grad. So I kind of had a connection there. He also worked at the Finger Lakes running company. So kind of, um, you know, I mean, I remember watching him run up this climb called the Lickbrook climb. And it was, the guy was like on like uh, those, uh, uh, those like moon moon bounce shoes. I was just like, this is not this is he's not human. Like, what is he doing? Like, it was just. I mean, we're all like huffing and puffing, and he just flies up this this huge climb like nothing. And uh, so that was really. Can, inspirational. I, can I stop you there? Because because yeah. this is an interesting thing. Because I think so many people, me included, will see people doing amazing things in the trail scene specifically. Obviously, the ultra scene too, but just the trail. And it's hard to put in perspective because the times are meaningless because of the terrain, the the technicality of the course, the huge climbs, the ups and downs, the twists and turns, the, the times are basically meaningless, even for unbelievable performances. So when you, a former Division I Power 5 college runner in one of the best college conferences in America at Oklahoma, see someone like this, and you're, and you're like, I can't believe what I'm watching right now. Can you like that? That's mind blowing to me to hear like someone of your caliber and background to look at someone else and be like, holy cow, like what in the world is this? When you experience that, and especially knowing Sage's background, again, he has a high level background. He ran with Brooks and Hansons, and Cornell is an extremely strong program. Um, but at the same time, it's not like 
he was destined for greatness, right? I think he built up, especially in Trail and Ultra, like this was a long-term thing for him. He wasn't just like, hey, this is Galen Rupp. This is Alan Webb. This is Ryan Hall. They've been on the scene forever. What was that experience like for you to see that in person and also reflect back on like, all right, well, what is possible for me? Yeah, I think my first thing was, uh, first uh, initial uh, kind of all moment was, I, I need I need to work harder at this because I wanted to be at that kind of level. And I was just starting, right? Like this was like my first uh, 50 mile race ever. And um, I was just kind of like blown away with, uh, you know, really just seeing like, this is where you could be if you invest the time and the training and preparation um, <clears throat> on the trails. And so it was just really cool to see that. And obviously in that first, that first race, I went out way too fast. I mean, that I'm, I'm running with Sage Kennedy, who at that time, I mean, he was a record beater. He was the, he was the athlete, um, of the year, um, <clears throat> that respective year. Um, he, he won everything that he ran. And, um, so it was pretty wild just to, you know, be in that type of presence and also just be surrounded by that, those, that type of caliber of athlete. And so I, you know, at the time for me, I was lucky I had signed with uh, Mammoth North America um, as their like first like trail athlete in the MTR division for North America, which was cool. Um, so I was kind of like in tandem with some of these international athletes and um, just feeling like I was a part of this like community, even though I had just started was really exciting. And, you know, it, it's like anything. Once you kind of get a taste of that community, you kind of, it, the you know, the bug bites you and you're, you're kind of, it's either you're out or you're all in. And I was all in. All right. I love that. Now, this is, we're talking about 10 years ago now. And there's a long history of people who go all in in the ultra scene. Um, it, it, I'm speaking more towards the ultra side of things now. And obviously, when we say trail and ultra, there's so much crossover here that's almost like, you know, from a Venn diagram perspective, it's almost like a, just a circle. <laughs> there's not even two circles. But just from the ultra scene, when we hear people go all in in ultra, that can be exciting. It can lead to amazing short-term results. It also can lead to, just like in college running, basically a long-term of running that doesn't involve running anymore, right? So from a long-term perspective, it's hard to maintain that. You've been doing it now for 10 years. So can you talk to me about the evolution of your training and, and racing uh, when applicable that has not only allowed you to be a very good runner, in this scene, but also one that is incredibly durable and someone who continues to do amazing things, even, you know, 10 or 11 years after they started. Yeah, I think, um, especially, I think it's, this is a really relevant question for these new, like this new influx of like talent, like, you know, road and track athletes that are coming into the trail space and trying to make a career out of it. Um, for me, I've never been a really a super high mileage athlete. Um, I've found that my my approach has been kind of very much uh, taking kind of learnings that I had from co in college, which was um, to never, if you ever feel niggles and that kind of stuff, kind of shut things down and um, kind of figure out solutions to kind of improve yourself so that you're always kind of, uh, you know, not breaking yourself down where you're like riding that fine line of injury. Um, and so I've been uh, pretty much between 70, 80 miles and then my peak weeks are usually 90 to 100. Um, I run a lot of hills. Um, I've incorporated strength training. I've really kind of changed up my like whole nutrition approach. And that's a whole nother conversation too. But, um, you know, I take a lot of pride that uh, I can compete at a very, very high level. 
um, without having to like, you know, I, I, I mean, for one, I've always worked a full-time job too. I've, you know, yeah, sure. It'd be great to run 140 miles I mean, there's every like week. There's like five people but, in ultra that can let, that don't have to work a full-time job unless they're like, yeah. and not be supported by somebody else financially. Yeah. Right. For sure. Like there's just, there's not many people who can, can, can do both those things. Right. And again, I'll, I didn't say that quite the way I want to like, but I say that, I mean like, there's probably like five people in American ultra running that can be a professional, have full-time salary and be able to support themselves without sort of external or spousal support. Exactly. So I, you know, I've always kind of coined myself as like a professional amateur, right? Like I, I, I'm an amateur. Athlete. That's a lot better than an amateur professional. I'll say that. Yeah. Like I'm an amateur <laughs> athlete that uh, has a professional approach, right? Like, and from the outside, I think because of some of my like achievements, like, you know, running really well at JFK 50 mile and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, really well. Like, um, you know, it's like, and, and that's, and for me, that's the inspirational aspect of it is like, you can achieve these great things just with the hard work and being smart and, you know, doing, going about things the right way. Right. Like I, <clears throat> I rarely get injured, knock on wood. And that's because I don't, like I, I train well, I train smart, you know, obviously I do the long runs, I do all those things, but I'm not, I'm not pushing myself so much to where I'm at a huge risk because there's also, I have a lot of other things going on in my life, you know, and those are also other stressors that can take away. And I think for me, the last, the last 10 years up until, well, let's say the last seven years, um, I came into every competition I did like exhausted, mentally exhausted, physically exhausted. I was like, just put way too much pressure on myself. I was my own worst enemy. And I think once I kind of got into more of a better life balance with, with running in, in the mix, um, everything has just fallen into place. So, you know, where I've kind of been these last like three, four years has been kind of just really more of a, a, a life balance kind of change as well as more of a mentality mindset change. Um, but I've really kept my training honestly, pretty much the same, you know, I've added a little bit more volume, but not, not a crazy amount. Um, and I, I feel like for me, this kind of more like, uh, free flowing type of training system has been very beneficial. So. All right, everybody I want to take a quick break and give a shout out to Lagoon. That's right. Lagoon sleep. You heard me in the intro talking about their pillows. Oh my gosh. They are amazing this year. I'm really trying to take better care of myself both before and after my runs. And one of the areas that I'm really focusing on is sleep. And not just about the time you the time you spend in bed, obviously that's important, but also making sure you have quality and not just quantity. And that's a big thing, right? We talk about all the time with training, quantity and quality, same thing with sleep. And part of that is your pillow. I have the Fox pillow. That was the one that I got after taking the online quiz, which was really interesting to take. You, you figure out like, what, what exactly do I need? What do I need my pillow for? How do I sleep? What are my preferences? And it makes a big difference. And this is a pillow I've had for over a month now. It's coincided with my biggest 30 days of training that I've ever had. And I feel really, really good. And I know a big reason for that is because of how I'm sleeping and how I'm sleeping is affected by my pillow and things are just going so well for me. Waking up from my morning runs has never felt better. I'm refreshed. I'm pain-free in large part thanks to Lagoon Pillow. So go to lagoonsleep.com. That's L-A-G-O-O-N sleep.com forward slash rambling. Take their awesome two-minute sleep quiz to find your match and then use code rambling for 15% off your first purchase today. 
Do you view yourself as a competitive guy? Oh, 100%. Yeah. All right. So with that being the background of this question, how did you handle the fact that you're an extremely competitive person who's running high-level races in an era of ultra running where it's continually expanding and getting more, more competitive and being able to maintain a slightly less demanding running schedule than other people um, without like constantly, or maybe you did without like the second guessing that comes along with it. Like how, how were you able to do that uh, being so competitive and being in some of the best races in the country year after year? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, when you have like the, the imposter syndrome of seeing like you see on social media, that person that's like running all these great, great trails. And it's like, do they have a day job? Like, what are they doing? You know? And, um, obviously there's envy there. Um, because, you know, yes, I do get the run trails and do those things, but a lot of the places I'm running at may not necessarily be the most sexiest places that you're, you know, are totally Instagram worthy, you know, where you're like, Whoa. Um, and so, there's definitely, I think, some aspects there, um, kind of wanting to kind of fit that mold. And I think uh, the thing that's really interesting with the, like, when I got into the sport, like, Instagram and social media wasn't really much of a thing. Like, I did blog posts for Mammut when I first started, and like that was, like, the main correspondence, and they did, like, newsletters, right? And um, quickly, things have kind of, like, grown to where it's just, it's a totally different model. And it's, like, I'm trying to figure it out. I think everyone's trying to figure it out. Like, what's the best way to, um, you know, uh, be able to, I guess, tell your story and do so in an authentic voice. And, um, you know, for me, I've, I, I've tried to stay true to kind of, like, my roots, right? Like, I've been an East Coast uh, runner my whole entire life. I've gone to different places. Um and what I'm excited about, I think more so now is that like financially and time-wise, I have much more flexibility and kind of like how my life is set up in the day in and day out. And so that's why I'm able to, I'm able to now start to travel a little bit more. You know, there's more opportunity now, which is good. Um, but I'll tell you, Matt, I do feel that the shot clock ticking down because I'm 34, right? And everyone tells me, well, you're at your prime of in peak endurance. Like you got to do all these things. And it's like, there's so many things that I want to do. Um, and obviously there's not enough time nor money to, to do ev everything that you want to do. So you have to kind of be selective, which is hard. Yeah. And I think that what we're seeing is that people extending their peak in, in, in endurance sports, right? Because obviously like maybe the explosive power can diminish um, quicker than the than the aerobic side of things for sure, but you know, and you're someone who's kind of maximizing their potential. We talk all the time on this show. It's like, hey, I'm in my 40s. What does that mean for my potential? It's like, well, you never even come close to maximize your potential yet. So you can still improve drastically in your 40s if, like, say you're again. I like to use the the building metaphor, right? If the building's 100 stories high and you're on the 38th floor, again. Just because the building now is 92 floors high, you still got a lot of room to improve, right? To, to go up, right? So uh, obviously you're someone who has come close to maximizing their potential as, as shown by your results over time. So maybe um, age can be more of a factor for you. But again, it's so at age 34, especially in a sport that is 99.9999% aerobic, like again, it's, it's, it is a pretty long tail. Yeah, and I, I agree with you too. I, I 
the other thing I, I think about is that because I'm a little bit lower mileage than maybe some of my, like, on the, you know, at the same level as some of my competitors, like, the way I, I've looked at it from a uh, more of a scientific approach is, like, yes, if I was running 120 miles a week for, you know, four years, like, that would be a more of a fast track way of, of getting that higher yield in terms of performance. But at the same time, like, it could lead, there's so many more risks to burnout, to injury, and all those things. And you see it a lot in the sport. Uh, now where you have athletes that like come out of nowhere and then you know they're they get signed by a big brand and then all of a sudden they disappear and that I don't want for anyone Um, you know and so you know I hope that you know people that listen to this they can kind of get learning and say hey like you know you do have to do mileage but it's not that's not the be-all end-all solution to gaining fitness and and maintaining fitness and you know I've taken I look at running as something I want to do and, you know, to the day I die, right? I want to be that guy that, like, runs up Mount Washington at age 96 that people are like, how is this even possible, right? Like, those those are the people that I really look up to um, because I think running is a lifelong um, endeavor, and that's always been my approach. Um, and so that's how I've done it throughout my whole career is, like, um you know, I, in, in many ways, I feel like I'm just getting started, you know, like it's taken me 10 years to kind of like feel things out and like kind of test the waters. And now really, this is the time this next 10, 15 years is where I'm going to hopefully really thrive. And then I can continue to just keep, you know, finding new goals, new challenges to kind of, you know, keep me busy. Now, you mentioned as like an East Coast runner who spent a lot of time on the East Coast and, and most of your running life. 70 to 80 miles a week, if you're doing it on East Coast trails, can be a, a much different time. It can be very different from a time perspective than 70 to 80 miles a week on the road, right? So I, I live this life. I can, on Tuesday, I did a two-hour trail run. I ran like 10 miles. <laughs> I was like, again, to put this perspective, my, that's like three minutes per mile slower than like my normal easy pace run, roughly speaking. So uh, that, that's, that can be a very different thing. Again, I'm not going to compare your running to my running because that would be a huge disservice to you and your accomplishments. But talk to me about like when you do 70 to 80 miles a week, how much, like, what is the terrain? Where are you doing this? Um, not physically, like people might not know the landmarks, but like what, what um, again, what is the terrain that you're running on? So it's, it's funny you ask. I, um, I actually primarily run mostly on roads, honestly. Um, I like to do a lot of country roads, right? So like, I'll run out to like the Connecticut state line from my house in Cranston. If I go west, I'm that is go- not close. Well, <laughs> but I know Rhode Island. The small people might not know. <laughs> running from where he lives in Cranston to connect to Connecticut is um, it's far. It's like 15 miles. No, probably, is, is it's it 19 a, miles one way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I do and I do out and back. So I go I go back home obviously. So, but for me like that. Um, you know, you kind of like, it's almost like a little plateau, like from where we are, we're like, I always tell people I'm 88 feet above sea level. And then you go up, um, you know, in just a couple of miles, you can be up to 500 feet. And then you get up to like, do you 600, take, do you take the bike path or you take side roads? I oh, know I do side roads. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, there's some hilly side roads there. For, for sure. sure. And that's, that's, that's where I do a lot of my training. And part of it's also a time, you know, as you talk about time uh, element, like if I need to get some more trail specific things, then I will carve out like a weekend day where we, you know, go to Lincoln Woods, which is an amazing uh, park. 
and run some loops through there and that type of stuff. I mean, there's tons of wildlife management areas we have in Rhode Island. The, the North, uh, North South trail, um, is unreal. Like, um, and it's things that you wouldn't normally expect in a place like Rhode Island. Like when people just maybe that aren't, you know, locals that hear about it, but the trail scene here is really sneaky good. Um, and so like I can go out and run some of those, but for the most part, just for time's sake, if I want to get the miles, I want to get the time um, on the legs and whatnot, I'll uh, run hilly roads, whether it's dirt roads or just regular pavement. Um, I'm still sitting over here like, oh, my God. Like, again, I used to live in your neighborhood. I know. What, <laughs> I yeah. know I'm trying to think like the side roads that I would take. I'm like, those aren't those aren't fun roads to run on. <laughs> yeah. so they're just not, um, at least from my perspective. So kudos to you for doing that. That That is a huge endeavor uh, and really a cool thing. All right. So when did these like, again, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with the terminology here because I don't think we've really identified what we call these things anymore, like the Cocodona 250 miler, <laughs> the speed project running it solo, like these ultra max endurance efforts. What about these um, is so alluring to you? Yeah. And Matt, I'll, I'll I'll give you a term. I call them multi-day ultras. Um, okay. they, I feel like they fit in the same uh, like uh, lingo as like what Camille Heron's doing on the track, for example. Mm-hmm. Like when she's running for multiple days on the track, it's in that same realm, but it's, I guess, more more extreme in the sense that you're it's like the more the trail multi-day, right? Yeah, the, the problem with that term, and you're right, that is a good term, is that like there are a lot of people who run 100 milers. For, for them, that's a multi-day ultra. Yeah, right? true. Not for you, right? Unless it's like the, one of the most challenging courses in the world. But like if I were to run a 100 miler, like it would most certainly be over 24 hours. Like it would be solidly a two-day effort, right? Mm-hmm. So you're right, that is a great term, but like it also misses it for like certain people who are like, hey, every ultra is an ultra, ultra, multi-day ultra for me. That's a good point. Um, yeah, I don't know. I Multi, multi-day. I mean, we're, we're talking about like day, days, when you, days with uh, uh, exclamation point uh, by the S, you know, like, um, right. I don't know. I mean, that's the thing is it's such a unique, uh, it, it's kind of like this uncharted territory, really. It's, you know, there's not a lot of one events, but then also a lot of people doing it and also a lot of like media and publication part of it. So it really is this wild, wild west um of of this sport right now and you know i do see it growing like we you know we have this conversation 10 years from now it's going to be a totally different conversation i think yeah so what so lingo aside what about these races really draws your attention and, and pulls you in yeah um so as i said before the the, the adventure aspect right um so for me i think it's more about like really uh can you finish it Right. Like, um, I would say that, um, when you talk about these longer events, it's more, it's not just about, you don't have to be a physical specimen. Like you don't have to be like just this incredible athlete to finish these things. You have to have, you have to be the full package. You have to be really, really strong mentally. You have to have, um, you know, some luck go your way. You have to have a good stomach. You have to be able to, um, you know, again, properly eat, hydrate, take care of your feet, do all these like little variables that can ultimately be like just game over kind of uh, scenarios and um that's what i like about is there's just there's more variables at play more things that can go wrong and you really have to be more of a strategist 
and problem solver than a uh, phenomenal athlete. And I and I like that. It's a it's a it creates more of a, a level playing field. Um, just because the this you know when we talk about track races, right? Like, is that person going to sit and kick? Are they going to go and push the pace out early? Like, I see more of that in these multi-day, multi-day-ish, multi-days style uh, events. So, yeah, let's 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 linger on that for a second. You know, I was uh, last night. Um, I was kind of like just poking around YouTube. I had to do a late night run because my, my son was home from school, homesick from school. So I wasn't able to run during the day. So I did a late night run. As anyone who's done late runs before night runs, it's hard to fall asleep right after that. So I'm just kind of like poking around YouTube and I was watching a Zach Bitter clip of, um, I think it was in the Joe Rogan podcast. He said like the 100 mile um, record. And I was watching some clips of that. And as I was looking him up online, like, oh, what was he? He mentioned, I, you know, I, did, I went to a small school. I went to a T3 school. I was looking it up and it's like how how often we find runners who are elite in these spaces that don't have who have like an atypical background right like again that they're not only are their names similar but it seems like their backgrounds are familiar are similar as like zach bitter and zach miller right coming from the same sort of a background again that doesn't mean they're not talented athletes but it means they're not like jumping off the page earth-shattering genetic freaks in terms of what we would traditionally talk about when we talk about talent. So in that regard, what are some kind of base level things that someone would need in order to reach that kind of level of ultra success? Like that you have reached, that Zach and Zach have reached, right? Obviously, you mean you're all college runners. It's not like you, hey, I, you know, I, I lost my gym class mile and now I'm a professional runner, right? This not, that's not quite the story, but the opposite isn't quite the story either. So what are some baseline needs that someone would have to be at just genetically and then also from a training perspective to kind of enter this world and have the kind of successes that we're talking about? Yeah, I think having obviously with, with running long distances, having an aerobic engine that's uh, well tuned is um, very important. Um, like for example, for me, I, I mean, I haven't done enough like lab testing or anything like that. But running the speed project, the paces that I'm that I'm running at, I never feel like I'm out of breath like the whole time. So like 346 miles, I'm in this uh, aerobic zone where, um, you know, probably heart rate wise, it's fairly low. Um, and I'm just like revving at this one kind of like sp speed, right? And for the speed projects, just, you know, my moving paces were just, honestly, they surprised me. They were crazy. Like I did, I think the first 200 miles, uh, Strava said I, my moving pace was like 10, 1036, I believe. And then the last 155 or so I was at 1206. Um, and so if I'm in that kind of pace range, uh, for me personally, I'm just able to kind of like just kind of like cruise um like you, would, like you would never go out like on like an easy run and run those paces i mean that's not, yeah like not, not even close no not normally um i have every, like every so often i might do a few little things um it, it helps running on trails too because you're usually going at a slower pace um so you can kind of get that those kind of elements so you know first thing i think is the aerobic engine um is definitely helpful but it's really, I think, just, um, you know, for me, it was learn, learn by doing, right? So, and I think that's probably the case with a lot of these, um, you know, top level um, ultra runners currently is uh, like a Zach Bitter is, you know, he had, I think, 
uh, I think you have to have a strong mental uh, aptitude. Um, you know, the, the, according to Walter talks about like the pain cave and stuff. And like, you, you have to, you have to sit in that, you have to be comfortable feeling uncomfortable for long amounts of time. Um, and you have to, I think, be able to like allow your mind to just kind of like disconnect from like some of the pain elements that you're feeling. Um, which I, I, I guess I've always had an ability to kind of like, you know, pretend like I'm living out some like daydream fantasy kind of thing while I'm in the middle of this long run. Right. And so by doing so, I'm not necessarily having to worry about those things. Obviously I'm in tune with myself. And I think that's another important thing for anyone is the more, the more that you run and more that you do do this activity, um, you know, always try to take Intel of like what is working for you. What's not working for you. This, this niggle that you're feeling here, it's, there's a reason behind everything. And I think when you're open to uh, observation, and this is, you know, this is my anthropology bachelor's degree talking, right, which is uh, a, a very excellent social science, but it's like when you're able to kind of observe those uh, key messages um, that your, your, your body's giving and then actually experiment and find the right, like, input-output kind of moments, um, things can really, really progress nicely. Um, and that's, like, for me personally, the nutrition element um, I pretty much feel almost, uh, I would say 98% on whole foods. So things that you can pronounce that aren't science equations, right? Like, um, we're talking about like olives and like hummus and salt and vinegar Pringles and like, uh, pizza, you know, and like just, now we're talking, you know, like <laughs> fruit, fruit smoothies, like just things like that. And so for me, like, obviously that was not an overnight. Like it wasn't like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to eat whole foods. It was more kind of like over time realizing that the certain products I was using just were the, the, the result was not what I needed and what I wanted. Um, and as I started experimenting with different things, I started noticing better results. And then, you know, one thing leads to another. And then before you know it, you're kind of like eating nothing but whole foods pretty much, which is where I'm at today. There you go. All right. One more question, then we'll dive into the speed project. I just can't help myself. I love this conversation. Um, so the possibilities for people to not only enjoy this sport of trail ultra running, um, but to do very well in it, like you have, seems to be, like you just mentioned, being open to a pretty wide range of people compared to, say, elite marathoning, certainly elite track, right? So a much wider range of people could be excellent at this. And yet, it's not that simple. We've seen some of the best people in this sport have been the best people in this sport for quite a long time. Not too dissimilar than what we see in marathoning, right? In terms of like, here, here's the top group. It's been a lot of the same names for a very long time, which is kind of an odd juxtaposition that we just mentioned in terms of like, hey, anyone can be really good at this. So what are, you mentioned, what are some of the things that people can do to, to be good at this? And it can be a large group. What are some of the stumbling blocks that you've seen that have caused some people who potentially could be in that upper realm or knocking on the door of that upper realm that ends up stopping them in their tracks or maybe not allowing them to get quite there? Yeah, and it's, it's really one word, which is patience. Um, I think that, uh, and, and it's, this is very, I think, telling of the times too, is that, you know, we're, you know, we go to McDonald's and we get a cheeseburger like that, you know, like it, it comes out instantly, right? We're looking for instant gratification, instant results, instant, instant, instant. But 
when it comes to ultra running, what I've learned is that nothing is instant. Um, you can fail instantly. I can tell you that there's more ways to make mistakes and have things go wrong and blow up in your face than, uh, things going right. And so if you take a more methodical, more patient approach, know that each day is a building block. And I think, you know, Matt, with your coaching as well, I don't do any coaching, but, um, you know, I've kind of talked with other, other people in the coaching spaces. And I think it's like, for me, I look at my training as like, um, I'm making deposits in this like savings account that I have somewhere. I always call it my, my term I used it for New Jersey was money in the bank. Right. And so like that money I used to use the exact same metaphor when I was trying to become a college basketball player. I use the yeah. exact same metaphor all the time. Yeah. I think it's great. I mean, it's like when you, when you take, you know, when you, cause you don't want in the savings account, you don't want to have to necessarily draw from it all the time. Right. So like it's, it's a, an account that you just want to like put away. It's that like rainy day fund. And so that's how your training approach should be is like every, you know, each day, like you're not going to see these monumental gains, but I think mentally you have to kind of prepare yourself and say, you know, I'm in this for the long haul. I have a goal. I have, the, I have a light at the end of the tunnel that I'm ultimately working towards. And you have to have faith in the sense that, you know, the things that I'm doing each and every day is, is, uh, an opportunity to be just one step better than how I was the day prior. And when you do that, those gains, that savings account, it grows and grows and grows and grows. And then when you really need to draw from it, when it comes to race day, you're ready to rock and roll. And so like, for example, all these longer events that I've done, I've been running since I was four years old, right? Like at least in, in terms of like playing sports and all that kind of stuff. So I, I have a lifetime of miles um, an activity behind me. And so I use that as a, a confidence boost saying, you know, I don't necessarily have to like cram in some crazy training block to be ready to run 346 miles. I can pull from this. Yeah. And like, how do you fitness. even do that? I think you're on like a 200 mile training run. Right. No, there's, I don't have, I don't want to do that. I don't have time for that. The, the recovery itself is, is too much anyway. And so, um, you know, I pull on this fact that I, that I have a lifetime of miles um, kind of in the bank already that I can pull from and say like, you know, and I, it's a confidence thing too. You show up to the starting line and say, you know, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm ready. Even if I didn't have the best training leading into this, that that's irrelevant because the training is inside of me. Like it's, it's, it's held up in that savings account and it's ready to be withdrawn and, and put out and shown to the world, you know? So. Absolutely. All right. Do, do you have a coach? No, I have, well, it, um, I've, not necessarily I'm, I, I have two like coaches that um, help me with nutrition planning as well as with kind of more of a strength-based plan those were kind of the things that I needed um, in my repertoire so um, I, I had some awesome coaches out of Boston uh, Lindsay and Anthony um, and uh, yeah they helped me in that regard but in terms of like actual structured running training I've been doing the same thing really since I left college all right, so let's talk about the speed project. Like you mentioned, it's a lot of miles. A lot of miles. Uh, with that said, you've done some huge mile races before. Again, we'll just go through some of this. You did Cocodona 250 last year, so that was May 2nd. Um, an unbelievable race. Um, you know, to, to talk about, like we talked earlier, about some of your current running doesn't really have that Instagram appeal. Uh, video and Instagram appeal at Cocodona 250 is all over the place. <laughs> Go search that on YouTube. You're going to see some absolutely amazing things. Um, again, so that that was a, a more recent, um, huge, huge effort that you did. You mentioned you also ran um, the length of New Jersey. So 
which doesn't necessarily sign up on Ultra Sign Up. Um, when you're getting ready for the speed project, first of all, when did you decide that you were going to do it? Yeah, the the timing is actually really great because it. What happened was uh, I was running the Boston Marathon as training for Cocodona uh, last year, and uh, I was with some friends and um, a mutual friend in our Airbnb ended up knowing the race director um, or knew someone that knew the race director uh, from the speed project. It came up in conversation and one thing led to another and uh, I, I was able to get the application, which is kind of Barkley-esque. It's like you have to know, it's really secretive. You have to know someone that knows someone to even get the thing. And then that doesn't even mean when you fill it out that you're going to get accepted. Uh, they do turn people down or away. Um, you have to have like, you fill, fill out this whole, like almost like a, like a letter or a document saying, you know, kind of like why, what mo motivates you to do this, um, you know, the speed project, and all that stuff. Um, so that's kind of where it started is, you know, getting ready to run Boston and, you know, it came up in conversation and then I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Like I'm serious about this. Um, Cause you know, I have, I, I look at distance as just a number. So uh, to me running more, just shows me, you know, that I'm capable of more and um, hopefully can, can show people that they're capable of more too, um, that you don't need to be bogged down by the distance. Um, you know, it's, it's all about your mindset and how you approach things. Hey folks, let's talk about Vacation Races. Vacation Races is a running and travel company that helps people explore and enjoy the most scenic places on earth. It's just a remarkable company and a big thing that they are promoting are their global adventures. So they just announced their full calendar for 2024. Currently, they offer 11 different global destinations from Alaska, Costa Rica, Croatia, Ecuador, Iceland, Ireland, Japan, New Zealand, Patagonia, Portugal, and a select and a secret destination. So I guess we'll find out about that later. These are unbelievable week-long adventures that do it's just amazing things. So in, not only are you going to be doing the running and the hiking and all that's associated with vacation races, but the meals and the hotels, they're all accounted for. for the, most, most of the meals and the drinks are all accounted for. The hotels are accounted for. You get a ton of swag. You get the beach hoodie. You get the race shirt, the medal, the Global Ventures trucker hat, um, some VR luggage tags. You got a bunch of stuff as well. All you need to do is sit back, relax, and book your flight. And it's really an incredible, incredible uh, company that if you are interested in doing some adventuring, that you, you can't do better than this place. It really is a remarkable thing. If you're interested in doing one of their global adventures, just go to vacationraces.com and use code RAMBLING200 to save $200 off your global adventures trip. Now, just, so, just a heads up, this does not work for any events that are sold out. Also, it's for the global adventures, not their half marathons, ultra marathons, or trail fests. Okay, so that's rambling 200 for a $200 off a global adventure. However, if you do want to do the ultra or the half that aren't sold out and you want to save some money on that, you can use code run rambling 15, say 15% on any half or ultra marathon that is not currently sold out. So you have two different choices again: the half of the ultra for rambling 15 or the global adventure for $200 off by using code rambling 200. All of this is in the show notes. Go check them out today. So when did you get alerted to the fact that you'd be in? Um, it was uh, August of last year, so August of 2022. 
Okay. So at that point, do you start training for this or is there, is there not really a divergence in terms of like training for this versus what you normally would be doing? I, I kind of just did my normal thing. Um, I, obviously I knew that this speed project was going to be upcoming. Um, so I just put on the calendar, um, and really just focus on having a good fall. I knew that the fall races that I had, I ran the, uh, Tesla Hertz, um, 157 mile race. Um, and so I knew that that would be a great, like stepping stone, um, to the speed project. And it would give me an opportunity to kind of, you know, again, in more of a multiple day format, kind of like test things out. You know, I finished in 31 hours for that one, that event. So it was, uh, you know, fast, it was on trail, that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, like I did that. And then, uh, you know, I just, again, focused on having some good, good recovery, some good, uh, good mileage, good training, different surfaces. Um, and really just focus on getting my mind right for, you know, what I would encounter at the speed project. All right. When did the logistics planning start and what were some of the many things on that to-do list that you really had to prioritize? Yeah. Um, so part of the reason why I ran this, this route called the OG route, um, is that the turn by turn directions were already provided. It's, it's the, the original route that inspired this whole event. And so they give all participants pretty much like a PDF that has what the OG route is. Um, and talking with the race director, I realized that um, logistically, even though it was longer, um, there was less risk of being stranded out in the desert because a lot of the routes that other teams have taken in the past, um, if you don't have a really solid like Jeep 4x4 vehicle in certain stretches, I've heard of horror stories of people getting, you know, stranded out there and having to call AAA and it takes eight hours to get the RV unstuck or um, even like some Subarus that they, that um, one runner had and whatnot. So I didn't, I wanted to, uh, you know, have the least amount of like possibility for things to go wrong. And so I felt like the OG route made the most sense. And also from, uh, um, for me as a personal goal, goal approach, made more sense too. like, I'm not afraid to run the extra miles and that kind of stuff, run through death Valley. Like it was, uh, you know, it was a challenge I was willing to, to take on. So. So talk to me about the planning in terms of support crew vehicles, you know, making sure you had enough. Again, the idea of like running through death Valley, not only is that hard enough as it is, you're getting ready for this race through a new England winter. Again, um, that wasn't that hard this year in terms of like, it was like two snows the entire year, yeah. uh, the entire winter. But at the same time, like we're talking about a very significant difference in terms of temperature, which even if you're talking to someone going from like normally 40 degrees to 65, that could be a jarring experience, even though 65 doesn't sound hot. If you're coming from 40 all the time, 65 is a jarring experience, especially if you're out there for a while, never mind running through literally a desert. So how do you prepare yourself to do that and the support systems and crews necessary along um, along that as well. Yeah. So uh, in terms of like the logistics part of it, um, uh, my crew, my wife is Ashley has been uh, just an incredible support um, for me. Like she's 
she's really been the, the, I call her the boss. I mean, she literally has been with me through any of these longer events, New Jersey, you know, Cocodona, you name it. Um, so she's definitely the focal point in terms of our crew. Um, we knew we needed some more people. Um, and so, you know, come January, we kind of pitched these ideas um, to some people. Um, two of our friends, DeSandra and Kelsey. Um, Kelsey lives in Bristol. DeSandra lives in New York City. And um, they had never been to any kind of like trail race before. You know, they've spectated. At, they're not they're not necessarily runners. They've spectated, um, you know, like Boston and like New York City marathons before. But that was it. And so, you know, we told them kind of like what they would be in for. Um but at the same time, like, you know, I think for all of us, it was kind of this brand new experience. Like, I, you know, never been to this. I've been to California, but I've never been to Vegas. I've definitely not been to anything in between that. So um, there was this kind of like uh, the puppy dog eyes, this bit of excitement. Right. And um, <clears throat> and then so like January, we started to get kind of having more Zoom calls and kind of ways to review things. I worked up documents in terms of Kelsey helped a lot with like the social media strategy to storytell so that people could follow along because there's really, it's hard to, as a spec, there's no spectators, so it's hard to follow along while this is happening. And then, um, you know, we just went over the route a little bit, kind of things that we, that could be like trouble moments that we, we would want to be prepared of um, ahead of time. And, um, you know, I worked on like a nutrition. Ashley was amazing. She created these big, huge like fishing tackle boxes. One of them was all medical supplies and one of them was all nutrition supplies, all properly labeled. Everything had their own cubby. And uh, those that that setup was absolutely unreal. It was like the perfect setup. And the, those were, again, learnings from Cocodona. We just kind of like had stuff in bags and it just wasn't organized the way it needed to be. Um, this time we were just so well organized, you know, took all our learnings from these longer events where, you know, it, things didn't go the way that we hoped for, um, uh, you know, we learned from them and then implemented them into this speed project. So, um, yeah, we, I felt like we were all well prepared coming into this, obviously anything that long, you never know what, what might come up, which things did come up, um, like any fun, wild adventure. But, um, you know, I felt like we were all at least ready to uh, adjust and adapt. Before we talk about those challenges and you know the 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 things that ensued and and uh, came from that, let's just talk about one more thing uh, before you got going. Let's talk about pacing, right? So you're going into this race again, 350 ish miles. You know you're going to be out there for days and days. What? How do you approach pacing uh, from this perspective, and how do you even monitor it as you go? Again, from pacing, I'm also just talking about effort. Um, but this seems like a kind of a nebulous thing when you're going way farther than you ha already have, and you know you want to make sure that you have enough juice in the tank. But at the same time, you're running, like we mentioned before, like substantially already slower than your normal easy pace. So, what what is finding that groove like, and how do you know if you're in it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think. Um, you know, I've had some past experiences where I've kind of like tried to play that stuff out. So like running New Jersey, I kind of had like a time or pace goal in mind and I kind of stuck to that and it worked out pretty well. Um, I did have some like, you know, some moments where I was struggling. Um, and a lot of that was just sleep deprivation. Like I just needed to take a good nap or a longer sleep and probably I would have been fine. Um, Cocodona was another point where I, I had terrible foot issues and lost a ton of time towards the, the back half of the race. Um, but my moving pace was still like, I, I, I think that race opened my eyes of saying like, 
no matter how broken I am, like I can move from, you know, move at this type of pace, um, no matter what, like, I felt like I had like a, like a limiter on me. That's like, all right, when in doubt, my, my legs are totally cramped up, but I can still move at, you know, let's just say 12 minutes a mile. And so, um, I, I use those, uh, those experiences as barometers. And, um, the other thing I knew is that, um, I, I had good nutrition in those events, but not perfect nutrition. And so I really wanted to just, uh, knock it out of the park for the speed project. And so a lot of my prime focus was just making sure that I had the fuel, um, cause you know, I burnt 60,000 plus calories in the speed project. And so, um, you know, as long as your stomach stays rock solid and you're able to just constantly be putting calories in yourself, um, you know, you can pretty much feed the engine and just keep, keep going. So, um, that was a priority and, uh, you know, uh, I would say it worked out. So how has your mentality evolved over time and gotten better in terms of handling basically the, in the moment, what you have to do in the moment in these races and not zooming all the way out to being like, Oh my God, I have 198 miles to go. Like I've been doing this, what for feels like forever. I've been running for 150 miles and I have 200 miles to go. Obviously that's a huge chunk, no matter how experienced you are as a runner and certainly you are that, but just wrapping your head around the zoom in zoom out narrative that can play itself out in your mind. Yeah. That's an amazing question, Matt, because my mental, uh, approach has changed over the years. Um, you know, I used to be my own worst enemy. So when I would catastrophize, when things would go wrong and I would, I would fixate on that number. Yeah. I have 80 more miles to go. Oh my goodness. I'm, I don't feel good. I'm not going to make it. Right. And what I learned was that don't ever fixate on that end, end game. Don't ever fixate on that number. Um, it's kind of like the savings account. Forget about it. Approach everything. Be more in the moment. And what I've learned is like, if I approach everything from how am I going to maximize my own potential from checkpoint to checkpoint? So if I'm living my life in, in just a, a, a series of checkpoints, right? So, um, you know, this, this one checkpoint is six miles, right? I want to do, I want to run the best six miles I have ever run in that moment. And then we get there, we do the refueling things that we need to do. And then another six miles. All right. That next six miles, I'm going to be even better. Right. And I think when you take that approach, um, you know, ultimately one becomes two becomes four becomes eight. And before you know it, you're at the Las Vegas sign. So, um, I think it's very easy to, uh, like, obviously it's easy to fixate on that end number, but my number one advice is don't forget about it because that that's let allowing your mind to take in all the negatives, right? Um, only if you, if you focus on the singular tasks that you have in hand, um, and make your mind kind of like a spear, like there's nothing that that's going to be able to get in your way, honestly. Um, and I think that's the learning that I've had and you know, how I was able to apply like my, my mental game for the speed project was like, it was you know, my wife was like, you're not human. You're an alien. I married an alien because I think I had built my mental ability and I, I had been t testing it, but I hadn't really gotten to a point where it was like, this was like, to me, this was like a world-class mental performance because yes, I was in a lot of pain, but like, 
just the way that I was able to like shut that stuff out, really focus on taking care of myself and just keep moving forward was, uh, pretty incredible. Um, so that's my, my, uh, kind of big lesson for everyone is again, don't fixate on that, the end number, break everything into little, little moments, little checkpoints, whether it's a light post, whether it's next mile and, and don't think about really the pain part of it. Think about how you're going to maximize yourself. So if your legs are hurting, say, okay, I, I want my legs to not hurt. Let's, let's, let's try, you know, and this is where you, you test these things out in training. Um, you know, for me, like I have certain keywords like Theragun or, you know, if I know I need salts, I'll be like, I'll, I'll want savory foods. So like maybe I'll go for avocados or things that I've experimented with that I know no matter what my body can metabolize. Um, and so, you know, I, I call those things, those words out of my mind and I, I just kind of start doing right. It's kind of like commands. And, um, once you kind of start to see the, the positive uh, reinforcement there, I mean, you know, then you got it. How have you approached the idea of the, um, because like body decomposition, and I'm trying mm. to think of like a better word, um, but basically things that can happen over, uh, over a race or over these adventures that can feel linear. Right. Like as I'm progressing, these are happening. I'm getting worse in these areas. I'm feeling worse in those areas. And it can feel linear. And yet ask any experienced ultra runner and they will tell you it may feel that way, but it isn't. And there are highs and lows and things that you cannot predict. What has been your relationship to this and what have you learned from that? And how do you put it into practice when you're going through it? Like Again, they feel like, oh, my God, but this time is different. This 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 is the time where I can't come back from it, and then, you know, all of a sudden maybe you do. So how how do you approach that, and what are some of the learnings that you've been able to take from it that that we can take uh, from your experiences? Yeah, I think the thing that, that really has drawn me to ultra marathon running is that is the word rally, right? Like you can always rally. There's always time. I think, um, especially in like some of the shorter events, like uh, you know. If I was running a 5k on the track or something like I might I might not think that there's time, but I think it's more of the the, the more the mental aspect. It, it, obviously, it makes more sense in an ultra marathon when you have a lot more time to work with. And so I always tell myself like not to, it's like when I say there's time, what I'm saying is don't panic. Um, you know, try to have more of a solution oriented approach, right? And uh, for me, like the speed project, for example, uh, a lot of it was on these like cambered like you know, roads that had some very nice slants to them. And there was enough vehicle traffic trucks and stuff where you had to like kind of run off on the, the, um, the sides and whatnot. And so I knew my hip flexors were going to be stressed and I could feel it. But anytime that I felt again, it's that, that command approach, the solution based approach. So anytime I would notice that stuff, I would text my crew if they were up ahead or, um, you know, I would even call them sometimes or, um, if I were, you know, I would meet up with them and they would just hand me a bottle and I would keep going. I would just tell them those words like, I need a massage, Theragun, or like massage gun, or like I would text that and, and, you know, kind of prepare them to say like, hey, this is something that I need. And then when I would get to that, that respective checkpoint, they were already aware that that was something I needed and we would just address it right then and there and problem solved. And so like, for me, I think you have to, especially in the longer events, you have to take care of things before they like derail you. 
And it's okay to take the time to do that because there's, in a way, you can, there's always time to make up time. Can you look back on your running history, specifically your racing history, and this can even happen in trail in a training run, where you viewed yourself as like, all right, I reached my limit. I, I have to call it here. I can't go any further. There are no more rallies, right? The rally cap is off. I'm done. Um, but maybe with time, maybe you think back and say, you know what? I don't think I was done. And maybe I was premature in that situation. Yeah, there were definitely some of those types of uh types of runs uh there's definitely some dnfs where um it was i was i'm still when i look back i'm glad that i decided to pull the plug like it was just there is no coming back and you know i i can live with that but definitely there's a lot of really a lot of even just 50 mile races where i just like threw my hands up being like i can't i'm i'm slowing down like it's game over and like i got into that mental funk where i was my own worst enemy you know i would catastrophize the situation rather than just keep staying focused and like can you can you explain that i i I love that word catastrophize um it's such a it's such an evocative word with that said can you explain to me like exactly what you were would would potentially be thinking in that moment like what catastrophizing meant to you in that situation yeah i think it's about also understanding like uh self-worth too like i would be competing with these athletes and say i'm running up this big hill and all of a sudden i'm like uh you know i my legs just get so they start to cramp up or something. And I'm just like now walking up this hill and I'm like, Oh, like I'm not going to be able to run the rest of this race, you know, and I still have say 15 more miles to go. And I would get in my own head and say like, I'm not worthy. I'm not good. I suck. Like, man, like I was running so well. And then all this, this happens and like trying to blame the situation um, and blame myself and be like, Oh, I didn't train well enough. I didn't get enough sleep. I didn't do all these things. And like, you know, your brain just starts, it becomes like this, like spider web of like different negative thoughts. And it then just spirals out of control. And, uh, you know, through most of my earlier career, like, I mean, that happened just about every race, to be honest with you. Like I, it really, the speed project was really the first race where I ran a hundred percent to my full potential. I feel every other race before that like it was good but for me personally i didn't feel like i actually i executed the way that i knew i was capable of uh so pretty crazy you know whatever 50 ultra marathons and all of them were like uh they were like i I had my moments but there is also a lot of uh uh you know adversity and and negative spiraling that might have occurred especially earlier on you know i think in the last four years again i've changed my mentality so uh, I've been more, I think, at peace with the results, even if they weren't what I hoped for, like Cocodona, for example, um, you know, a, a 12th place finish I'm very proud of. Um, it's more of the story behind it was it was a race that I shouldn't have finished. My feet were so bad that like if anyone had seen them, they would have been like, you shouldn't even be walking, dude. You should just like go home, uh, soak them in a bath for like 12 hours, you know, Um and yet I was able to still run, you know, my, my finish into the finish line was ridiculous. I mean, I was doing like six, some six thirty a mile or I don't know. I think at oh, one point God. it was like five fifty or something. I don't know. But like that opened my eyes of like saying like, you know, like we can be broken on the inside, but yet we can mend ourselves and be even stronger as a result. And I think that's just a really valuable lesson for people that, um, and you know, those are points where I realized 
mentally like just how like poorly I was treating myself and how poorly I was I was kind of sabot self-sabotaging um you know at the time were really great performances you know and um what I realized is that I ultimately the reason why I run too is I want to get the most out of myself you know I want to see what my potential is and I've learned by doing that my potential is endless and I and I truly believe that that's possible for anyone like it doesn't mean that you're going to be a world record holder but find what you know based in your framework like find what is uh possible for you um and what you're going to find is that through hard work and determination and and persistence and patience that and learning that you can take a negative and turn into a positive and be able to push beyond what you have ever uh ever expected um you know i used to have my mind kind of in a box like you know if i wasn't in this box like everything else outside of it was just not possible and as soon as i said you know i don't need a box you know everything's possible and opened up my mind um you know things like the speed project materialized so so you mentioned that this was the best executed race you've ever done also it's the longest race you've ever done so it was a great mm -hmm. time to have that experience with that said like you mentioned it doesn't mean it wasn't without challenges part of the reason it was executed well is because of how you dealt with those challenges so would you mind sharing an example example or two um of that yeah i think it, what's fun is um so my crew had a lot of challenges too like they got the rv stuck in death valley the block in the road Oh, it's, a, it's like a two-lane road too and uh yeah they got stuck in a sand dune and they rallied and were able to get the rv unstuck within a span of like i don't know three four minutes um and i remember that instance because i was like huh i i i hadn't seen them for a while i'm like i wonder where they're at and then all of a sudden they're like they whiz on by to next like two miles down the road or whatever um so that was one instance um another instance we had what i what i call like the the breaking point was uh it was night three. We had gone through the hot part of uh, this one, the main Death Valley section. And uh, it was really a beautiful kind of like um, setting. It was just so peaceful, quiet. You could hear a pin drop. It was just like us humans, the RV, and like this vast kind of like deserty mountainous wilderness. Um, no, I didn't see any wildlife or anything either. So it was just like, it's just a surreal feeling to feel like you're almost like walking on a different planet, right? And um, some rain clouds came in. We had crazy weather this whole time. It rained and sleeted and snowed and, you know, all kinds of crazy sandstorms. I ran through a sandstorm like Sahara, just nuts. Uh, but this this crux of this point was um, it was a, a uphill. The sheet said it was 700-foot climb. It turned out in actuality that it was, uh, I would say, about double that, if not maybe triple oh, that. Oh, God. It was a 10 mile long hill and I started it just as it was getting dark and rain clouds came through. It was sleeting. The wind came through. I wasn't wearing rain gear at that, at that moment. The RV was up ahead. And what was crazy was when we went from a very quiet, serene experience, all of a sudden cars and trucks are whizzing by me at like 80 miles an hour on this like road that's supposed to be like 55. And, um, it just got like, there's, there's like chaos, you know, from peace to chaos and um we all regrouped as a as a as a team my wife had told me she was like this hill is only only maybe a half mile more and uh, so i pushed another i got the rain gear on i pushed for another half mile and i was like this is i stopped and i'm like stop 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 and i'm like 
I go back in the RV. I'm like, this is not a 700 foot climb. Like I know what those are like. I, I do those all the time in my training. And, um, I'm like, and I'm like, I just need to know. I just like, and I was tired. I need to nap. I was at my wits end. I'm like, I just need to know what I'm, what's up ahead. Cause this hill just looked like it went forever. Right. And, um, luckily a state trooper came by just to check on us and make sure we were okay. Um, and he told us that it was another five miles uphill. Um, it was another 1500, <laughs> another 1500 feet. And so, um, it was weird. I, you know, 300 little... feet per mile is a, is a decent slope. Like that's not, that's not nothing. It was very steep. It was very steep. Um, and again, we're going off of the little booklet and little did we know that that was a little bit of a omission. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, you know, once I knew kind of like, okay, I kind of know what the expectations are. I was able to mentally kind of rally and then just get out there in the rain and just hammer up the hill. And I hammered, you know, listened to my watch beep five times. We made it. And then it was a five mile downhill to the next quote unquote checkpoint, which was like a little, this little town, um, near some hot springs and there was a post office and stuff. Um, and once we really got through that, I was like, what there, nothing, nothing, we can get through anything at this point. Like that was, that was the most challenging moment in this run. Um, and yet there are still more challenges that we had to encounter further down the road. Um, but you know, it's just, it's a good life lesson, you know, like you can, no matter what I felt like, I felt like our, our crew, like we could get through anything at that point. I was like, we've dealt with so much, this whole experience, we're 200 and I don't know, uh, 70 miles in furthest I've ever gone. Right. And, uh, like bring it on, bring on the next day. We got this. That's great. So we haven't talked about how you finished this race. So talk to us about like what, you know, what, you know, your finishing time and what that meant, uh, in historical terms. Yeah. So, you know, to sum up the whole speed project run, I went out aggressive, right? I went out like 17, I think it was like 17, 15 for hundred miles. Um, I ran 120 miles the first day and I knew that I was aggressive, but I knew it was within my limits. Um, and so <clears throat> my goal was ultimately to try and average hundred miles a day. I, I think ultimately I came up around 90 or so, which is excellent. Um, because the hundred miles a day, it was a very audacious, very bold, like, this is like the super, super, super world, world class. Like this, that's like, I, I didn't even think that that could be done. So to know that I came that close was amazing. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was really cool. You, you, uh, you know, you go, we had a long downhill and like the, just the, the sights and, and views of the mountains with the snow caps and everything, um, heading into Vegas. And I still had one more climb. It was a 5,000 foot climb, uh, over 10 miles. Oh, but hey, it's the last climb. I also did it like in the middle, like in the afternoon. So like I could see where everything was. Um, and so I was like, well, I did this crazy climb in the middle of the night when I couldn't see anything and, and it was raining and sleeting on me. And now here I am in a beautiful sunny day. It's like 70 degrees. I'm like, I got this. And I just took the trekking poles and just in my typical kind of mental fashion that I, I did it at Cocodona up the last climb and so on. I just like just started hammering it out, you know, and, um, hammering it out for me at that, at that grade was like, I think I was doing like 13 minute miles maybe. Um, and just like a metronome up and up and up. And, uh, it was cool. Once we got to the very top, um, you know, I'm at 5,700 feet of altitude or so, and you could see 
Las Vegas, the light's all down below. But here's the thing, Matt, is that I still had 24 more miles to go. <laughs> so, you know, obviously it's like, oh, you, you got it in the bag, right? But like, I know how long 24 miles is. Like, that's that's not chump change either. So um, I knew I had to still mentally, I'm like, oh, I right, put on the brakes, still be patient, still take care of yourself. There's still a long way to go. Anything can happen. And um, the next few miles, the downhill was so steep coming off of that uh, that road that I was like, I was, I don't know, I was doing like eight minute miles or something. And I'm just like flying down. I passed the RV and I'm like, meet me in six miles. I'm like, this is like a pinball machine. And, uh, I was, I was thinking, man, if this downhill is like this the whole way, I'm like, I'm going to get to Vegas in no time. Like I'm thinking like, you know, the world's fastest downhill marathon. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yes, this is like, this is a dream come true to finish this. Unfortunately for me, it flattens out a little bit. So after that next six miles, so there's like 14, there was like 14 miles where it kind of flattens out and I started slowing down a, a little bit and I was, um, running on fumes at that point. Um, I, my palate was kind of shot. So like any food I was putting in tastes like mush. So I was just putting stuff in for calories. I wasn't getting like the mental gain and boost and vibrancy from it. And, uh, you know, it's just like anything when you get to the end of the race, you just got to put your head down and just get it done. Right. And so that's what we did. Um, I, I got to, uh, the last 10 miles to go and I was exhausted. Like I was spacing out and, uh, had a pizza slice and some sugar cookies. And then I went on the six mile stretch by myself. And at that point you had gone from the suburbs of Vegas into more of the city internal city section. And, um, I just, I kind of, I had, you know, again, I had this mental, like mental fortress, the whole run. By the time I got into Vegas, I just let the walls down and let, like started feeling everything and it was just so overwhelming that I just like, I didn't lose my mind, but I just was like, I felt so out of touch with what I was doing that I called my wife, Ashley, and was like, Ashley, I'm like, uh, all these lights are just, it's too much for me. Like, I just need to take a nap. I can't, like, I don't know if I can do this. And, um, she ended up walk, uh, running and walking out to where I was. So we met like, uh, say like two miles from the next checkpoint and she kind of helped guide me into the, the, the little aid station gas station and i was just like i need 10 minutes i need 10 minutes to take a nap and she's like no we're gonna do this she changed into some running gear and then ended up running the last four miles with me uh to the las vegas sign which was very fitting and really at that point all i needed was just someone to be my eyes because my eyes were so overstimulated and i was so tired that um, i could just couldn't focus on the road or the path really um i could see things but i just couldn't like you know i, I couldn't um, I guess, place myself in that space appropriately. So having her allow me to just shut my mind off and just focus on moving forward. And then, you know, we got to the sign and celebrated and it's, it's, it's funny. So the thing about the speed project that yeah, cracked, four miles, man, that's just, that's, that's, that's a run from your house to PJ's pub. You can I do know, that. I love PJ's pub. Um, <laughs> But, and Ashley does too, but, uh, you know, Ashley, she's training for the New York city marathon. She would tell you she's not a runner. Right. And, uh, she's been making great progress in her training and, you know, she had run with me through, um, some portions of, uh, of the speed project. And at the finish, I mean, she was running faster than she ever has for four miles. Um, and knowing that, and, uh, you know, I think we were doing like 10, maybe 10, not, you know, nine, 10 minute, nine minute miles kind of stuff. And, 
it's just really special just to share that with her and um, know that she was able to push herself, uh, you know, to a whole different, different level too. And just to share in that whole experience. I mean, um, you know, to be the first, first solo runner to complete this route. Um, it's a beast of a route to, you know, for let's me just to pause there for a second. Yeah. The first solo runner to complete this route. I mean, that is, I know you breeze through it because you know, you're, you're doing a great job of summarizing the experience, but that is an enormous accomplishment. Were you aware that that was a situation before you started? Oh yeah. That was always the goal. Um, so people ask me, it's like, uh, podiums or kind of like history. Right. And so for me, like mm-hmm. what I felt had more value to me was like, and when anyone runs the speed project and they run it solo and say they do the OG route, like people records are meant to be broken. Right. Um, but to say that you're the first person to ever do something like that can never be taken away. And so that was a legacy that I was shooting for, that I wanted to put that stamp on, put the Rhode Island stamp on, the East Coast stamp, the New Jersey stamp, you know, just to say like, hey, like we're, we're incredible athletes too. Like Rhode Island might be the smallest state, um, but it's given me so much already in such a short amount of time. And I am, I am definitely one of the biggest advocates for this, for New England uh, as being a running Mecca. And it, I think it could be a trail and ultra running Mecca as well as much so as a place like a Flagstaff as a Colorado shore. Okay. We don't have high altitude mountains that look great on Instagram. We do have our mountains and they they do look good on Instagram. You just have to open your mind to that stuff too, you know, like, but it's like, there's just, there's just something special here. And so for me as an ambassador, I look at it as like, I'm an ambassador of Rhode Island. Now that I have my driver's license in Rhode Island, there is something special here. We're the home of Cole Crosby. Well, no, it's not. You know, I just I I think it's I'm not kidding around. This is an enormous <laughs> accomplishment, Cole. This is this is really special stuff. You've done been doing this for years. Uh, it obviously took a long time to get to this point, and it's a, it's an enormous achievement. So obviously, I was I was saying it a little tongue in cheek, but at the same time, it it is a real thing. I mean, this is a huge thing. You've done um, some really high level running. For a very long time, um, and from a history, from a historical perspective, this—that's exactly what this is. I mean, there's well, there's no question about it. Well, thank you, man. That means a lot. Um, yeah, it's it's you know it's I, I, it's hard it's hard for me to, uh, I think, say just how much of an achievement this this was. Um, I mean, ultimately for me, uh, what the reason why I do these runs is just to inspire people to show that like hard work does pay off, right? And that the the amateur can be a professional. Um, it's all in the approach. And, um, you know, you don't have to be the most talented, gifted person to to make history, you know. And, uh, you know, you don't even have to... You can live in Rhode Island and make history, too. And, uh, you know, I think that's always been my MO. Is like, as a, I'm a grinder, I do every... That's my approach in everything I do in my life, in my, my, my work, with my sales side of things, my running, my relationships. Like, I'm always putting in the work because I know that it's going to pay dividends down the road, um, in the future. And just having confidence in that, um, is what I feed off of. So, um, so yeah, thank you so much. Ocean state. We got, we're, we're the OGs, you know, like, (laughs) and I, and I love that. I just love that. Um, you know, I think it's also an East coast perspective and mentality too. Like we don't always have to take the shortest route. Like us East coasters, like we, we, push ourselves hard through tough winters. Um, 
you know, and I, I feel like it's this uh, New England also kind of mentality as well. That's like, um, we're going to get the job done, even if it's not the easiest, uh, easiest way, you know, easiest route. You know, it's like, oh, it's okay. We're taking the longest route. If we got to do it, we got to do it, but we're going to get it done. And that's, that to me is something that I really, truly value about where I live. I love it. Cole, thank you so much for coming on the show and detailing all of this. It is uh, it's a remarkable story, and I'm so glad that you told it here. Thank you so much, Matt. Real, real pleasure. And hey, we're neighbors, so yeah. Anytime you want to get together for a run, I'll run whatever pace, man. We'll, we'll have there some you go. Fun. I can run my threshold pace, and it could be your um, 350 mile pace. It's perfect. <laughs> it's a perfect match. Remember, don't don't th- don't fixate on the on the number. Just just go out and have oh, some no, fun. Oh no, I'm just going just basing on it. Off it. That's all. <laughs> all right, thanks a lot, well, thanks Cole. Again. I appreciate it. Cole, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was absolutely fantastic. Also, of course, big shout outs to our sponsors, Lagoon Pillows and Vacation Races. If you want to get some of the best sleep that you'll ever have in your life, go check out Lagoon and Vacation Races. Is providing just some unbelievable international experiences that you really have to see to believe. Thank you so much for listening and happy running.